You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So as we open this passage, there's been a change in scenery, right? So last week, Pastor Michael preached the wedding at Cana, and we saw Jesus as the Lord of the feast, the Lord of wine. It was just really beautiful illustration. And here, we've kind of changed scenery, and we are at the Passover celebration of the Jews, which is at hand. Now, if you read the other gospel accounts, you'll remember there are four gospel accounts in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you won't find this, this content right after the wedding at Cana. In fact, you won't find the wedding at Cana at all in the other gospel accounts. So this is unique, and some would say that John wrote his gospel account in it with a different approach than the other gospel writers wrote theirs, and that rather than just pursuing straight Uh, chronology in the way that he documented these events, it was important to John that he put the stories in an order that made sense theologically as he was trying to show different attributes of God or tell the story of who he was. Of course, this is obvious when you first open the book of John and you start reading chapter one, and he opens with the declaration of in the beginning and goes back to the creation story to try to exalt the nature and the character of God and, 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 and to put deity on Jesus, that from the onset we would see that Jesus himself is God. And then he launches into, like, from there to start talking about John the Baptist, which seems backwards. Like, first you're at the creation, and now you're in the Jordan River with John, and then you're at a wedding, and now you're at the Passover. And so this doesn't seem to be super concerned with doing things chronologically. Instead, it seems super concerned with making sure that he illuminates and highlights certain attributes of Jesus in a certain way. And so I want us to look for it this morning, that he jumps to the Passover of the Jews. It's at hand. Now, in Exodus 12, we know the story of the Passover. This is the story of when God delivers his chosen people from Egyptian captivity. Okay, they had been in captivity uh, uh, under, under uh, slavery and oppression, and they cry out to the Lord, says the Lord heard them, and then he appoints Moses and Aaron to go and speak against Pharaoh in order to, to and call him to let my people go and to, and to relieve the captives from their hard oppression and to lead them into a promised land. But Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he continually says, no, he considers himself to be God, and he sets himself in opposition to God, and he says, no, I will not let them go. And so God sends a series of plagues on the land of Egypt in order to coerce Pharaoh to obey and to put his power and majesty on display to both his people and to the nation of Egypt. Ultimately, the last uh, plague that we see in this is the Passover plague that he calls for all of the people of God to go and grab a spotless lamb and to bring it into the home and after several days to slaughter the lamb and to eat the lamb and to take the blood from the lamb and to put it on the post and lentil of their door because he's going to send the destroyer to do work in the land of Egypt. And all of those who are found, whose households are found covered under the blood of the lamb are spared from the destruction as the destroyer passes through. But those who are not covered by the spotless blood of the lamb are not spared. And ultimately, in the grief and sorrow of this great plague, Pharaoh lets the people go. And then God institutes as the beginning of a new calendar for his people. He says, every year you shall observe going forward this celebration feast of the Passover. 
And so the people are to, once again, eat a lamb and to eat it with bitter herbs and to take unleavened bread and to eat that. And in remembrance, remember the time that the Lord spared them from the destroyer as he led them out of Egyptian captivity and into the promised land. So every year, faithfully, this day on the calendar comes around and Passover is celebrated. And this is one of the feasts where the people would make pilgrimage into the holy city of Jerusalem in order to make their offerings, their sacrificial offerings and their tithes in the uh, temple and to partake in the feast in the holy city. So this is the time of year that it is. And it's important that we just kind of look, put our minds back on Exodus 12 this morning just to remember why we're even doing this. Like, like is the, the, when we say the Passover of the Jews is at hand, it's talking about something very specific. This is like the highlight of the Jewish calendar, that we all stop and look at our faithful God who delivered us by the blood of a lamb. Now, Jesus himself, of course, we have to jump ahead to understand this, is about to offer himself as the perfect and spotless lamb for the salvation, lamb of the salvation of the people. And so Jesus attending Passover is a bit ironic right? Jesus, who is himself the Lamb of God. John has already declared, like, remember, John's writing this in a specific order. John has already told the story of John the Baptist declaring to the people, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So that title of Jesus has already been brought into the story. And so the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is going to attend Passover. Okay, so the Lamb is going to the Passover feast. And when he gets to the temple, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, the temple was designed a specific way, and there were outer courts and inner courts, a series of concentric circles, and each of them was a broadening picture of God opening up access to himself to all of the peoples of the earth. Now, the outer ring of the temple was for the Gentiles, for those who were not Jewish by heritage, but who wanted to worship the one true God. And so we see with an increasing focus as God gives the designs of the temple in Jerusalem, and we see it even before there's a temple in the tabernacle, all the way back in the early books of, of the Old Testament, that God is all about using physical structures to communicate to the people of the earth who he is and what he's about as far as being an, inv an, an invitational God who wants to create access for all people to be reconciled to him, starting with his chosen people, the Jews. Well, in the temple, in this very temple that has been constructed, this place that is supposed to be the access point to God, where there is various levels of access and various rings and circles and dividing walls where all these people can be invited in. Within the temple walls, Jesus finds that they are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and that money changers are sitting there. Now, in order for these, this market to be accessible to all the people, it would have had to naturally be in the outer ring. Right? Otherwise, it would only be a market that certain people could get to. And so it would have been in the area of the temple that was reserved for the Gentiles. So those who were not part of the ethnic people of God, those who had come from afar to participate in the Passover, would have come into the area of the temple that they were allowed to come into to access God. And what would they have found there? That in their portion of the temple, in their area where they could access God, they would find people selling oxen, and sheep, and pigeons, and money, and money changers sitting in there. So there was a market. 
So you've got to see it and you've got to hear it, okay? You've made the pilgrimage from afar into Jerusalem. You arrive at the temple to make your offering and to worship the Lord. And what you hear there is the bleeding of sheep. You smell the dung and manure of the animals. And you hear the chatter and the clamor of a marketplace. And Jesus sees this, and his response is to make a whip of cords. But before we get into Jesus' response, I want you to try to envision the, the few reasons why this is wrong before we start to see how Jesus responds, okay? I want you to imagine maybe that you are going to a birthday party, and on the way, you pop into CVS to pick up a gift for the person whose party you're going to, and you hand it to them in the CVS bag with the receipt. Is that okay? Yes? No? Heads? No? Not quite okay, right? Let's say that you go to a wedding, you attend a wedding, and as a gift to the bride and groom, you pick something up from the gift shop at the wedding venue, and you drop it on the table. The very activity that, that you've got to remember that we are celebrating the Passover, this idea that you are, through your sacrifices, rem- doing a celebration and a, remember, a ceremony of remembrance of the great deliverance of God from captivity who declares that he is your God and that he will deliver you into a land overflowing with milk and honey and that he will provide for you. It's that time of year where you are supposed to come in under awe and wonder at the, at the great history of God's faithfulness to you and you can't be bothered to bring a lamb or to bring an oxen or to bring the pigeons with you, but that as a matter of convenience, you'll just pick it up when you get there. When you get there, I'm going to go into the temple and I'll buy one from the market in order that I can take it from here and take it over here and sacrifice it to the Lord. This very thing is an offense. This very activity is an offense. That there was even a market for this, that there was even a a demand for this is an offense. That there was enough of a demand that there was profit to be made in it and that this became the primary way that people would take care of this time of year is an offense, okay, by itself. I want to say that. But I also want to say that it's not an offense because of the nature of God. Now, the fact that you could offer an oxen or a sheep or two pigeons as your offering was a concession that God made because he wants to be very inclusive of everybody in this time of year. The Lord wanted, if you can't afford an oxen, then a sheep will do. If you can't afford a sheep, then two pigeons will do. The Lord was amazing at opening up access to this celebration for all people. And so God was obviously more interested in the spirit of what he was doing than the letter of the law. And we see that in God when we see Jesus constantly contending with the Pharisees who were great at observing the letter of the law, but were so missing the spirit of the law that when the perfect obedience to the law embodied in Christ is standing before them, they don't recognize him, right? So this is, this is a God who is very much about making concessions as an invitational God to bring more and more people into his presence, but then it's about people presuming upon a God who they think of as impotent to just show up and check the box and do what I'm supposed to do at this time of year and show up in the temple, I'll buy it when I get there, I'll make the sacrifice, and then I can get to the party, so this, this in and of itself was an offense, but then also we hear about the money changers sitting here. Now, 
it was important that you paid the temple tax with an acceptable coin in the temple. It couldn't have any image of some foreign face on the coin itself. And so when people were making the pilgrimage into Jerusalem, if they were coming from the far stretches of the Roman Empire, they would have come with whatever currency was standard for them. And so you needed to make an exchange when you got into Jerusalem into a coin that was acceptable to pay the temple tax. So the money changers, a currency exchange, is set up again inside the temple so that people can go and do that. And we know that the money changers were making this exchange at a markup where it basically cost you a day's wage in order to make the exchange. And so they were profiteering on the people of God who were coming from the far reaches of the Roman Empire to worship their king. And so for these two reasons, you have a major offense happening inside the temple. You've got people hindering access to God, and you've got people making a mockery of the sacrifices, and you've got people profiting on others, uh, not, not even to increase the yield that is to be given to the temple, but to line their own pockets. So you can see with me the problem that Jesus encounters when he walks into the temple. And so let's see how Jesus responds. Verse 15 and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, I have heard this passage preached many times. And a lot of times, this is going to be like we, this is like the story where we can justify our anger. This is what, this is how I normally see it handled. Normally, what I see happen is, look, Jesus flipped tables, Jesus dumped out the money bags, Jesus made a whip of cords, and if Jesus can do that, then when I flip out, I'm just like Jesus. And we want to justify or say that somehow Jesus modeled for us in this passage what righteous, holy anger looks like. And you just, we create a whole apologetic for it. And we say, listen, there is such thing as righteous anger. There is such thing as just and holy anger. There is such a thing as that. And that's what I have. And I just want to say to you that this passage, on, we're going to get there, that this passage cannot be used for any of you when it comes to justifying the way that you express anger. And we're going to get to why. But here's the first thing. Verse 15, and making a whip of cords. That means that Jesus didn't have a whip of cords on him in this moment. He didn't see what was going on and then grab the whip out of his pocket and start getting to business, right? Like Jesus didn't flip out on the scene and just start like responding passionately to what he was seeing. Jesus stopped assessed the situation, found the materials that he was going to need, whether from the threshing of the animal beds and the, and, and the twine that was available or whatever, and he gathered what he needed, found a place to sit, and braided a whip. I don't know how long that takes, but long enough for you to cool down. Jesus, in a premeditated and holy fashion, sat down and created a whip of cords. He knew exactly what he was doing. Then he returns to where they were, and with this whip, he drives the cattle and the sheep and the money changers out of the temple. And then he flips over the tables, he pours out the bags, and he says to them, do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
Now, this is typically where you're going to see, like, the change, and we're going to say, like, see, so as long as your anger is premeditated, and as long as you thought about what you were doing ahead of time, and as long as your reasons are just and pure, then this is how we model righteous anger. And I would say, fine, but that would be a really poor handling of this text overall because of this. Verse 17, his disciples see this in what he says and what he does, and they remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, I would imagine that when they remembered this passage that they were focusing on that word zeal. Like, gosh, Jesus is really zealous about his father's house here, and that much is true. But I also believe it's no mistake that what the Lord brought to mind for them in this was Psalm 69. It's important that we take it in context. I'm going to read it to you. Psalm 69, verse 7, says this. It's David writing this. He says, For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. This is the passage that the disciples have in mind when they see Jesus' zeal for the house of the Lord. In the back half of this verse that they quote, zeal for your house will consume me, is far more important than the first half. It's not just about the zeal for the house, it's about the zeal for the house of the Lord that consumes him. Now this word consume means to eat up, to devour, that the zeal for the house of the Lord consumed our Lord. So when you think about your zeal and you want to compare yourself to Jesus in this passage, unless you are prepared to be consumed by that zeal for the house of the Lord, meaning to give up your very life, to spill your blood as you are consumed by this zeal for the house of the Lord, then you are not making an apples-to-apples comparison. The zeal of the Lord for the house of the, the zeal of Jesus for his father's house here is so zealous that he's willing to be consumed in it for the sake of his father's house. The application here is that Jesus himself, we want, let's go back, Jesus himself, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, who has made the pilgrimage into the holy city, who has walked into the temple of the Lord, which is meant to be the physical access point to God for all the nations, goes into the outer ring and sees that the worship of the Lord is being hindered, and that the people who are meant to worship God are not able to do so cleanly, are not able to do so the way that the Lord had intended. And he is so consumed with zeal in this that he is going to lay down his very life in order to fix what is broken there. Jesus didn't just create a whip of cords and know that today, for the rest of today, he could clear out a spot for people to have access to the Father. Jesus cleansed the physical temple today in order that tomorrow he can give up his life and make the temple clean and, and accessible to all people forever. He was consumed by his zeal for the house of the Lord. And so the Jews said to him, In verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And I want us to make sure that we see this correctly. 
that when Jesus starts to show that he, or to claim through this action that he has authority to regulate the temple, right, Jesus, by taking it upon himself to create a whip and drive out the people from the temple and to say, don't make my father's house a market, the people look upon that, the Jews look upon that, and they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Because they are correctly brought to a pause when they see him doing this. They're saying, listen, not just anybody would claim to have the authority to regulate the temple of God during Passover. You've showed up on the scene claiming to have the right to regulate the activity inside the temple. What sign do you show us for doing these things? Because they want to know, are we just dealing with a crazy zealot or are you some heaven-sent prophet who's been sent to clean up the house of the Lord? But this is a disingenuous question. Because if they were actually interested in the answer, then they would see that the fact that Jesus just did that was sign enough that he was sent from the Lord. What Jesus just did was incredibly godly. It was a huge sign of the Lord. Of course the Lord is interested in keeping the outer ring of the temple clean for the outsider. But they don't see that. They say, what sign do you show, for, show us for doing these things? And Jesus answers them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What's interesting in Jesus' response is that he doesn't say, I'm not showing you a sign. He doesn't say that was sign enough. He doesn't deny them what they're asking. They say, what sign do you show us? And he responds with, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. He's not just being tongue-in-cheek. He's literally offering them a sign. He says, I'll give you what you ask. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews respond, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus, physically standing inside the temple, is asked to give a sign, and he says, tear down this temple. Destroy this temple. But he's talking about himself. He's in the temple, and when he says, destroy this temple, he's talking about himself. He is loudly declaring, I have come to replace these stones and to myself become the cornerstone of a new temple and tear this down. And in three days, I will rise it up. But they didn't understand that he was talking about himself. So going back to the zeal uh, for the house consuming him, we need to understand that, when we, that, that this prophecy, the zeal for the house, was not zeal for the building. In fact, at Calvary, when Jesus is crucified, the veil is torn, and within a generation or so, the temple is going to come down. This isn't about the temple structure. This is about inhibiting access to God, the very thing that Jesus had come to resolve. So he says, tear this temple down, and three days later, I will rise it it up. Now, in giving up his body, his very body, and he declares that his very body is the temple of the Lord, we have to see this through the rest of John. 
that Jesus walking on this ground, on this earth, Jesus walking among the people, that he himself is achieving what the temple used to, used to have to achieve. In, ta- in dwelling bodily among men, when God took on flesh, he was tabernacling among the people. The temple was no longer necessary. A special one place and one time access to God arrangement was no longer necessary. Jesus was tearing down these dividing walls of hostility in order to create direct access to God for all people by his own blood. His zeal for the house of the Lord, consuming him, meant that literally he was willing to be consumed in order to open access to the house of the Lord for all the people. And so again, I want to say to you that unless our zeal for the house of the Lord, and let's hear it correctly, house of the Lord used to be the temple. Jesus himself in this passage says, now I'm the temple. He calls himself the temple and then invites the people who want a sign to destroy him. He says, you want a sign? Destroy me. They don't get it. They're going to do it anyway. And so they destroy him. And then he says, but three days later, I will rise it up again. And so he does. Three days later, after he is crucified, he is resurrected from the dead. And so he gives the people the sign that they were looking for. It was his zeal for the house of the Lord that compelled him to do this. But now in rising again, he sends the Holy Spirit to fill the church. And he says of you and I that we are now his body. So if we follow this logically, the temple used to be the house of the Lord. Then Jesus says, no, my body is the temple. Then Jesus says, I give up my temple, destroy it, and I will rise it back up. And then he rises it back up and says, and now you, through my resurrection, are qualified to receive my Holy Spirit, and now you shall be my body. And so the body, the church, that Christ is building, the whole purpose of all things, that Jesus is building for himself a great temple made up of all the peoples of the earth, all the tribes, tongues, and nations, built together in one central purpose of worshiping the king. You are now his body. So his zeal for his house is now applied to you, to the church. We are the body. Three days later, I will take my body up again but he doesn't take it back up in its old form, does he? He returns glorified, and in his glorification, it wraps all of us up in this new body that he is creating. So unless your zeal for the house of the Lord, which is now defined as the people of God, leads you to be persecuted, beaten, mocked, stoned, imprisoned, crucified, then please don't use this passage to talk about how your zeal is like Jesus' zeal. But when they see these signs, verse 23, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many started to believe in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This can be a difficult doctrine for some people. But here's what we're reading. The people say, give us a sign. Jesus says, I will, and he he will. 
And then he goes on to do many lesser signs. We're going to read all about them in the gospel accounts. And as people see the signs, when they see him turn water into wine, and they see him raise people from the dead, and they see him heal the blind, and they see him heal the, heal the sick, and they see him do all of these miracles, walking on water, many people are going to believe in his name when they see the signs that he is doing. But that's not enough. You cannot just look on the miracles of Jesus and have that be the reason that you believe in his name. That apparently is not enough. Verse 24, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he himself knew what was in man. Listen, there are all kinds of people who are going to tell you that we believe in Jesus on the basis of the facts. We saw the miracles so we believe in his name. And that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, believing in his name based on the miracles that we've seen. Many people won't deny that Jesus was a healer or that Jesus was some miracle worker or that Jesus was a prophet or that Jesus was something. He clearly wasn't nothing. He changed the world, right? A lot of people aren't going to deny Jesus wholesale. But believing in Jesus because you saw the signs that he was doing is apparently not enough. The second part must also be true that Jesus, on his part, would entrust himself to them. It's the far more important part, not that you see something with your eyes, you're like, something's going on here, but that Jesus himself, looking into your heart, entrusts himself to you. It says, Jesus, knowing what is in a man did not entrust himself to those in Jerusalem who believed in his name. So my question to you this morning, church, is has Jesus entrusted himself to you? Or has this been some one-directional exchange where you've measured the facts or you've read the stories and it seems like, you know, that this would be something that would be worth believing, and there seem to be some benefits associated with believing in Jesus, and I certainly want some of the things that he appears to be able to do, and, and all of those kind of things. Or it, it, when he looks into your heart, when he peers into your heart, does he find that you acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of saving? Are you entrusting his life of righteousness, his life, death, and resurrection on, on your behalf, or are you still bartering with him? coming to him with your righteousness, coming to him with what you've earned, coming to him with your excuses or whatever they are, and saying, somehow in partnership, Jesus, I know I need what you have to offer, but you kind of need me too. Because Jesus does not entrust himself to those people. And I know this is scary, but we know Jesus said it himself that on the final day when he is separating the goats from the sheep, there will be many who come to him who say, we cast out demons in your name. We perform miracles in your name. And he will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. How is that possible? It's possible because when people see the signs that he is doing, many will believe in his name. But on Jesus' part, he didn't entrust himself to them because he knows the inner workings of a man. Listen, many of us in Mascuda and on Scott Air Force Base and all around the world need to hear these harrowing words because Jesus goes into the temple. We need to remember the setting of this teaching, okay? Jesus went into the temple. These were the people of God. 
The fact that these things were happening means that, means that they knew the observances. They knew the letter of the law. They were trying to follow the letter of the law. They were even trying to find expedient ways to follow the letter of the law. They might have said they were really doing a service by making it so that you could go ahead and make your money exchange when you get there and all that. And all of it was missing the heart of God. Jesus standing in the very temple, standing among the people who would have said, we are for sure God's people. Standing among people who see what he's doing and are like, man, he's something, did not entrust himself to them. So surely, if that can be true in the temple while he's walking on earth, it can be true of someone in this room today. You are not called to make some petty claim that I believe in Jesus. We are called that when Jesus peers into our hearts, that he finds that we are people who believe that he must entrust himself to us, that we don't bring anything to that exchange, that we in our own power and righteousness are unable to barter with him or earn anything, that we must come to him as sinners in need of grace and nothing more, that we must count on his work, on his faithfulness, on his life of righteousness, on his sacrificial death on our behalf, on his resurrection. This is it. This is the gospel, and believing in the miracles of Jesus is useless apart from receiving the gospel. And so this morning, I pray that we would all, again, search our hearts and say, Lord, have you entrusted yourself to me? Not what have I done in your name. When I stand before God on that day of judgment, I will not be able to say to him, I preached the gospel in your name. I planted a church. I shepherded people. You can go to school for this. You can get the right credentials and then apply for a job and be a pastor. It doesn't gain you access into heaven. It doesn't gain you favor with the Lord. And similarly, your good works done apart from the Spirit of Christ are as filthy rags. We don't earn the favor of the Lord. Christ earns the favor of the Lord on our behalf. And so consumed was he with making access to the Lord accessible for all people that he was willing to give up his own life in order to purchase it. So we receive his covering, his blood, his sacrifice. We allow him to be consumed on our behalf because the truth is, is none of us are consumed with this to the level that we ought. If we were, we wouldn't need him. But by God's grace, he sent him anyway. This is a simple message this morning, guys. It's not about anger. It's not about righteous anger. It's not about zeal. It's not about what you need to do. It's not about mimicking Jesus. It's about receiving him. He showed up on the scene where he most should have encountered people who really got it and understood, and he found that it was a dead space. And so he brought it to life. And I just want to pray this morning together that he would not walk into a space like this and start driving us out with a whip of cords. Let this be a place where he peers into the hearts of man who knows all things and finds that this is a people who depend on him. It's from dependency alone that we will receive the favor of the Lord. Let's pray unto that this morning.